All right. Let's uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a privilege it is to to come together in your house to worship you, to to study your word, to learn what you would have us to know. And God, I just pray that you would uh, guide us as we continue this study, that uh, we would just value your word uh, more and more highly, that we would seek to understand it accurately, that uh, it would not be a tool to um, promote our own agendas, but that, Lord, we would just humbly submit ourselves to whatever your word says, and that we would be honest as we approach it. And, uh, God, we, uh, we truly need your word in our lives to direct us, to teach us who you are, to teach us about the great salvation that you have provided. And God, we need uh, the power of your Holy Spirit to overcome uh, all of the wickedness in our own heart that is so bent away from you. Uh, God, I just pray that you would just do a work in us and cause us to, to be lovers of your word, to be doers of your word, and we would honor you in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we're continuing our study on how to study the Bible. Uh, just a quick review. We've covered the topics of why it's important to study the Bible, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in correctly interpreting the Bible, um, finding the meaning of the text. That's the that's the real purpose. That's what we're going for. Um, identifying different genres in the text uh, so that we can take that into consideration while we're attempting to interpret things. Um, recognizing that scripture interprets scripture, um, bringing the whole counsel of God together as we uh, attempt to uh, understand exactly what the word of God says in a particular place. Um, and then the last time we talked about context, uh, specifically just looking at um, what's you know when we're trying to interpret something, what's the this the what's around it, what's the the flow of thought, what's the uh, the topic under discussion, whatever it is, it's um, it's we 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 can use the context to help us understand the way something should be interpreted because um, context will exclude some interpretations and point us to other interpretations. So. Well, this morning we're going to talk about um, the original languages, translations. Um, this is something that's um, this is important for us to realize, um, even if it's not necessarily like front and center in, um, in our study of the Bible. Um, but I'm sure that all of you know uh, the Bible was not written in English. Uh, the Bible was written in Hebrew and in Greek and some parts of it in Aramaic. Um, these are ancient languages. Um, and just to ask the question, does anybody here read Hebrew? I don't see any hands. Does anybody here read Greek? I don't see any hands. Okay. Well, I'm in the same boat. I, I can't. I can't do those either. So, so what does that mean? Um, like we're all here stuck with nothing but an English translation. Um, can we really study the Bible if we uh, if we can't read the original languages? I mean, that's that's a problem, right? Um, and there are different ways that that this has been answered uh, by various people. Um, so I want to talk about a couple of, of errors in how we approach that, um, and then we'll and then we'll talk about the way it really is. So the first error is that yeah, you can't really understand it unless you can read the original. Um, now usually people aren't going to go to that extreme and say, well, you just can't really understand it at all. But there is sometimes a perspective of well. You can't really disagree with what I'm saying because I read the original languages and you don't. So you just have to take what I say and just accept it. Um, and you know there are some people that um, kind of have that arrogant attitude of it's like, well, I read the original languages. I've, I've determined this is what it is, and you just you just can't argue against me. Um, 
if that's the case, um, then that's going to lead to a dependence on scholars that prevents us from studying the Bible for ourselves. Now, I, I think it's just a, a fundamentally wrong idea, um, and I don't think that God would give us his word in that type of way. Um, God intends for his people to read his word and to understand it. Um, and if you had to read it in the original languages, then I think God would have providentially ordained all of history where we didn't have multiple languages. Um, I think I think that's a reasonable conclusion based on the purposes of God. Um, so I think we can kind of dismiss that idea um, that you just have to be able to to understand the original languages, um, or you can't actually do thorough study of the Bible. And I think you know. I think probably all of you who have done any serious study of the Bible realize that even when all you have is, you know, the English, you are still able to do really thorough study of the Bible. Um, the other perspective uh, on the other end of the spectrum is that our English translations always fully convey the meaning of the original. Um, usually, this is a perspective that um, that comes from somebody who will pick a particular translation and say, "Well, this is this is just you know the English translation. This is what we should follow." And I think some of it comes from uh, a recognition of the purpose of God in making sure that His people have access to His Word, and they, when they consider the idea that, well, you know. The original language might say something different, but I don't have access to the original language. Then they get kind of frightened by that, and they want to just grab onto one English translation and say, "Well, God's going to make sure I have everything I need, so that means this English translation must be perfect." Um, I'm assuming that um, all of you, well, at least I'm assuming that most of you have heard of King James Onlyism. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you have encountered people who subscribe to that. Um, I know that. As the years go by, I encounter fewer and fewer people who subscribe to that. Um, but um, several years ago, it was at least it was a very popular movement that said, "Well, the King James Version of the Bible, 1611 uh, English translation that was kind of the standard for centuries, um, that that's basically. I mean, they have different perspectives, but it's it almost comes down to God re-inspired the Bible in English in 1611." Um, and so any translation that deviated from the King James Version was considered to be an error because it's deviating from the Word of God. Um, I think uh, this is a, a fundamentally flawed perspective um, for a host of reasons. Um, but really, I mean, when you consider it, like people throughout the ages um, have to have the Word of God, not just people who have lived since 1611 and speak English. Um, it's God provides his word to his people at all times. Um, so it really isn't the case that our English translations always fully convey the meaning of the original. It's just not the case. Well, so so how do you how do you work this out? You got either you just you have to have the original um, or, well, you have to have a translation that perfectly reflects the original, right? Is, is there no middle ground? What do you think? I'll throw this out here for, for you guys to maybe suggest something. Is there, is there a middle ground here? Well, I, I, in the past, I've compared one translation to another translation to get different nuances <laughs> that might be pulled from one or the other. Now, I've got, usually it's ESV, uh, NASB, and King James. <laughs> it's all, I'll usually compare multiple translations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's something we're, we're definitely going to be talking about um, in this lesson, um, is the value of comparing translations. But yeah, that's the the, the fact is is that, um, well, does anybody else have any, any other thoughts on that? I mean, you can also, I mean, there's certain people who prefer uh, the critical text over, you know, um, TR. Mm -hmm. So different um, textual methodologies and translations. So. Yeah, I mean, that, that is something that also comes up. Um, it's not something I wanted to delve into a lot this morning, but... But yeah, it's it's there are differences in translations based on the textual basis of them. Um, and in 1611, 
they had a very limited number of manuscripts, particularly of the Greek New Testament, um, that they used when they put it together, and you know, and they tried to do the best they could. Um, and but since 1611, we have found literally thousands of manuscripts and got them cataloged and compared. And so we have a much better idea of what the original actually said. I guess just to, I mean, since you bring that that topic up, no, that's that's fine. Just I, I do want to just just throw out there that that basically that whole issue is that. Um, you know, until the uh, 1400s, um, there was no printing press. Um, at least no movable type printing press. I guess there was a, a version of it a little earlier, but there was no movable type printing press until the 1400s. And so copies of books were all handwritten. Um, people just had to literally write it out by hand. And if any of you guys have ever attempted to copy a, a lengthy text out by hand, then you probably know that you make mistakes sometimes. I mean, even like if you're just using a keyboard and typing, it's it's really easy to just get little mistakes in there. Um, but uh, and so and so like the copies of the Bible do have minor little errors in them in various places. But that's nothing to concern yourself about because there's a whole science of comparing them and coming up with a really good picture of what the original said. So we have great confidence in the original, and that's a that's a great topic for uh, lots of good lengthy discussion. But um, uh, but yeah, so the different translations are based on different textual basis. Um, I know uh, Mark mentioned the King James Version. I, you know, the King James Version is okay. I usually don't use it for my comparison just because the textual basis of it is so different. And the English is, you know, it's 400 years old, um, which it's still readable, but there are definitely a lot of words that have changed their meaning. Um, so it, to me, it, it loses some value. So. Um, but um, I think really, like when we consider this, um, the thing to realize is that our English translations adequately convey the meaning of the original. They don't completely, exhaustively, perfectly convey the, the meaning of the original, but they convey it adequately. Um, they give us enough information that God is able to provide what his church needs. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's really where we start. Um, God is able to provide for us what we need uh, with the English translations we have. Now, we can go beyond that. We can uh, try to delve in and study a little bit more and get beyond what, you know, whatever our English translation of choice is, we can get beyond that a little bit. And Mark already uh, jumped into some of the ways that we do that. Um, so... Um, so how does this affect the way we study? Um, if you know the original languages, um, obviously your your study should be focused there. Uh, but for most of us, uh, we don't know the original languages, so what should we do? Um, well, you should base the study on the English, and if it's a good translation, you should be able to come to a correct interpretation of most passages. Um, and if you have the time and inclination to go further, there are two ways that you can get basically limited access to the original languages, even though you don't yourself know the original languages. And the first one is exactly what Mark brought up. Compare other translations. Um, now, there's a warning with, um, with this and with the other thing I'm going to mention, but to start with, the, the warning here is... Um, the quality of translation matters. Um, you want to be comparing good translations. Um, if one of the translations you're using to compare is the New World translation created by the Jehovah's Witnesses, you're going to run into some problems because they were not attempting to convey the, the meaning of the original. They were attempting to promote their particular doctrines. Um, so it's it's obviously very important that you have uh, good solid translations in your study. Which again, to you know, mention the King James, is that's why I don't typically use that for uh, for this purpose. Just because it was fine 400 years ago, um, but it's just we've learned so much more 
um, that it's just not going to be one of your top tier translations. Now, if you want to compare, like specifically what um, you know what the the state of the text was and what the state of the English language was 400 years ago, that's that's certainly valuable. I know I find the King James particularly valuable if I'm studying something like the Westminster Confession of Faith. That was the Bible of their day, and oftentimes I find that there's there's particular phraseology in the confession that if you're just used to reading the ESV or the NASV or something like that, you're not going to catch that they're making an allusion to the biblical text. But if you start looking at the King James, you'll see the wording is just so similar. It's like, oh, they're pulling on that verse right there. So the King James still has its value um, for that perspective. So, um, so um, I would say, you know, if you compare two, three, or I mean, even ten translations of a passage, uh, you will be able to get a peek at the original languages. Um, I mean. You know, it just depends on how much time you want to put into it. Uh, but the more translations you have, the the, the more you're going to catch things. Um, so if you uh, see that one particular word is used without variation in every translation, um, that's a good sign that there's no real question about the meaning of the word. Um, and that it corresponds very well to the chosen English word. So that's something where it's, in a sense, you can get behind it and say, well, what does the Greek mean? It's like, well, all ten translations say the exact same thing. That must be what the Greek word means. So um, you can get it that way. And, you know, in all honesty, from what I understand from people that do know Greek, most of the time our English translations mean exactly what the Greek means. So sometimes there can be this mysticism of like, well, well, this is what it says in English, but what does the Greek mean? It's like, well, sometimes it just means exactly what the English means. So, But there are times when you can get a little extra nuance, a little extra information uh, from the Greek. So you don't want to dismiss that. So so that's if you know everything's the same. Um, if, on the other hand, you see uh, that a variety of words are chosen in different translations, that's an indication that there may be some question about how to properly translate the word. Um, and uh, if that's the case, you can dedicate more time to investigating the meaning of that particular word. So it's kind of just a flag that helps you optimize your time in studying the word of God. It's, you know, it's like, oh, well, this word, they all agree. I can basically just say, yeah, that's what it means, and I can move on. I don't have to delve into that in great detail. But if you have a spot where it's like, well, you know, they're just all over the place on what word they translate here, um, well, then you might want to dedicate more time to studying that and trying to come to the proper conclusion. Um, it might also indicate um, that there's not a precise English equivalent. Um, in which case, uh, the variety of translations should help you get a sense of the meaning of the word. And I think that's particularly what Mark was talking about, is you can, you can pick up different nuances of the text because you see kind of the variety of words that are used um, just because, I mean, words are, words are kind of funny. You know, they have multiple meanings and different shades of meaning. And, you know, sometimes you, you have a word that, like, uh, they, you know, words have overlap in meaning, but then they have places where they, you know, they can't really be used together, uh, or they can't be used synonymously. So, if you're looking at multiple translations, that will help you to kind of get a picture of like what is the range of meaning, you know, in the Greek behind this. Um, so that's a that's another way that you can kind of get at the Greek. Um, and, of course, this can be expanded beyond words to comparisons of phrases and sentences. Same basic principle. Um, it's just a way to kind of help get a hold of what's there in the Greek. And that's kind of the easiest way to kind of bypass the language problem we have. Um, the second thing you can do is you can use original language tools. Um, there's several of these that are available to us, especially in our technological age. Uh, but again, this comes with a warning. Uh, languages are very complex, and it's easy to fool yourself into thinking that you are handling language properly when, in fact, you are making mistakes because you are unaware of some aspects of syntax or grammar. So you have to be very cautious. Um, sometimes people will 
you know, just not really know any of the Greek, and then they'll look up the Strong's number, and they'll see, you know, here's the definition, and here's the places that it's used, and they'll just come to just absolutely dogmatic conclusions, when if they knew just a little bit of Greek grammar, they'd realize that their conclusions aren't actually correct. So you have to be very cautious. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do this, but you just have to be very aware uh, of the limits of uh, you know of your you know of your understanding of the language. Um, so you can use computer tools uh, or books to identify the original language word that corresponds to the English word that you want to study. So you, you're looking at this word in your English text, and you're like, well, I want to know about that word. It's like, well, you can, you know, you can get a, you know, a computer tool that will tell you this is the Greek word behind it, or this is the Hebrew word behind it. And then you can look it up in a lexicon, um, which is just a kind of a fancy word for a dictionary. Uh, it's going to tell you what the word means. It's usually going to give you a whole range of meanings. Um, and uh, you can consider what form the word is in, which will give you several clues as to how it's being used grammatically. Uh, you can find other uses of the same word in the Bible um, and in other ancient texts and study its use in those places. Um, that's one thing that like, you really ought to be utilizing the original languages to do that because there can be a temptation to like look at an English word and say, oh, well, where else is this word used in the Bible? And just look up that English word in other places in the Bible. But you might be looking at a word that is a completely different word in the original language in two different texts. Um, and so that can really lead you astray. So you do want to make sure that if you're doing this type of study, you're actually looking at the same word in the original language. Um, but yeah, you can you can find the places that it's used in the Bible, and you can study the context of each of those, and use that to help you get a sense for what the word means. Um, and finally, um, you can see what uh, people who do read the language have said about it. Uh, so you can look in commentaries, in books, in articles. Um, you can often find some really in-depth discussion uh, from people who know the language and will discuss the grammar and the syntax and all that and will at least get that information to you so that you can make a more informed decision about what you think uh, that particular word means. So uh, neither one of these approaches is really as good as knowing the original languages itself. Um, and they only provide a limited view into the original languages. Uh, but if they are used with caution, uh, they can help you see things that you would ordinarily miss. Um, any thoughts or questions about that? I mean, it's kind of just a brief overview there of like kind of how you how you get past that language barrier. Does anybody have any any questions or thoughts about that? All relatively clear. I, I, I would just say, I echo what you're saying, because like in seminary, I know that professors challenged us as they taught us. Mm -hmm. They said, you know, so you guys walk out of here with, you know, three or four years of language, mm -hmm. you know, that's maybe the level of a three-year-old or, four, you know, what I'm saying. And and they were just challenging us, continue to grow in that, and you know, and and so. Be confident in your skills and your abilities, mm -hmm. but also understand you're on the, the younger side mm -hmm. of that too as well. And so, you know, even the things that you've talked about, you know, with commentaries and maybe there's scholars that are linguists or mm -hmm. they've dealt with these things in, you know, many more years and things like that. So, you know, there there needs to be the humility mm -hmm. whenever you're, you're doing that. And there's a whole lot more, you know, if I say, ma'am, I got a cool car. You know, if I look up the word cool, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's going to give me, a, you know, there's idioms and, uh -huh. and there's oh, yeah. grammar, you know, words at the beginning of a sentence that might be emphasis that you don't catch in English. There's just a whole lot more to language. Mm -hmm. So it is a very exciting, mm -hmm. and, and the things you're saying is very good, but it's also very humbling, too. Right. And, and so, yeah, so I, I appreciate your words of caution. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a really good, I mean, it's like... In a sense, I'm saying, like, for us that don't know the original languages really at all, 
we have to be really careful. And it's like, you know, Master Rick, he's had some study in the original languages. He knows probably a lot more than any of us here in the room on this topic. And he still is like, he has to be cautious uh, for the same reason. So if he has to be cautious, all the more we have to be cautious because we can really bungle things. Um, you know, if you interact with people that um, that their native language is in English, um, you know, it's like, I mean, uh, you will, uh, even if they've been for years speaking English, they still are going to, like, make little mistakes, and you can you can kind of catch that. And it's like even people that English is their native language, you know, make make lots of mistakes. So it's just like languages, languages is really tricky, has lots of pitfalls, um, and you have to be, uh, you have to be really careful. Um, so now let's let's uh, talk about. I said that the the quality of the translation matters. Let's let's talk about uh, translations just a little bit here. Um, there are um, different types of translations, and and what I mean specifically here is there's different translation philosophies, um, and it's really important if you're going to be. I mean, really, it's just really important for any English speaking Christian. Or really any Christian uh, in whatever whatever language it is to understand uh, the basics of of different translation philosophies. I guess it wouldn't matter if you only have one version of the Bible in your language, but that's going to be a, a pretty small subset of, of uh, languages. Uh, in English, we have a plethora of translations, so it's definitely important for us to to have some tools to evaluate different translations. Um, so. Translation philosophy. Um, there's kind of a spectrum of translation philosophies uh, that goes from what you would call a word-for-word translation philosophy, where basically they're just looking at what what is the word in the original language, and they're just transferring that over into English. Um, it's not strictly what they're doing, but it's basically what they're doing. Um, then there's uh, what is called a dynamic translation, sometimes also called thought-for-thought thought translation. Um, and that they're a little looser on the actual words that are used, and they more are trying to get at what's the, what's the idea being conveyed in this particular thought. Um, and then you get uh, all the way down to paraphrase, where they're really just saying, hey, what's being said here? Let's come up with a way in English to really convey that. Um, and this is a spectrum. Um, this is something that that runs from being fairly literal, fairly word for word, to really only a marginal connection to the text that's that's being translated. Um, and um, no translation is strictly word for word, or we wouldn't be able to read it. Um, I mean. I'm, you know, I'm sure, Pastor Rick, you could you could confirm this if you just take the Greek text and you just like, well, here's the first Greek word. I'm going to write it the English equivalent. Here's the second Greek word. Here's the English equivalent. It'd be it'd be nonsense, wouldn't it? So, um, you you just can't do that. So, I mean, uh, there there's always a certain amount of of um, you know fiddling with things to get it to where it's actually in reasonable English. Um, but uh, even the loosest paraphrase contains word-for-word -word translation in various places. Um, so there's, there's, there's not really anything that's hard at one end of the spectrum or the other. Everything is in the middle, and different translations are just at different spots along the spectrum. Um, and uh, it's a general philosophy, not an absolute philosophy. Uh, so you can find individual phrases uh, where the dynamic translation is more word for word, and the word for word translation is more dynamic. Um, so I mean, they have a general philosophy, but like when they come to each individual text, they might deviate from their uh, particular overall philosophy. Um, some level of interpretation is unavoidable in translations. Uh, word for word attempts to minify this. Uh, paraphrase does it extensively. Um, so the word for word, they really want to try to minimize the amount of interpretation they're providing and really just as much as possible give you the text as it stands. Whereas the, the paraphrase, it's really just like, well, we're going to give you our interpretation of the text. Um, so 
Um, and the, the handout that I gave you, and we're going to be, I'm going to be giving you some time with that here in just a minute. Um, it, it covers some of the kind of standard ones that, uh, that you would use um, that, are, that are reasonable. Um, and uh, they kind of go in the, in the order of the spectrum. So the first one I have there is the New American Standard Bible, uh, which is a fairly word-for-word translation. Uh, the ESV is still a pretty word-for-word translation, but it's a little closer on the dynamic side. Uh, then you have the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Again, it's a little bit farther down the spectrum. Uh, then you have the NIV, a little farther down the, the spectrum. And then you have the Living Bible, which is just an out-and-out paraphrase. Um, it's, its connection to the text is, is a lot looser. Um, and I mean, these are just uh, you know five examples of translations you might use. There, there are many other... Uh, perfectly reasonable translations. Uh, it would take a long time to like go over everything, and you would have to have unlimited time to even keep up with all the English translations and really evaluate them. Um, but just as a just a little summary, if you're like, well, what would be good translations to look at? Those are five reasonable translations if you just kind of want to look at it and get a spectrum. Um, Let's see here. Um, so when you're studying, I would say that a word-for-word word should be your go-to study Bible. So something like the New American Standard, the ESV, kind of should be uh, your go-to study Bible. Uh, the dynamic and paraphrase can be helpful in getting into a look, uh, getting, uh, getting you uh, to look at a text differently. So I recommend using them, but keep in mind, uh, that they are more interpretive, uh, and the interpretations can be incorrect. So just be more aware of that the more you go towards the dynamic and paraphrase into the of the spectrum. Um, comparing translations not only helps you to kind of get a look at the original languages, uh, but another thing that it does is it kind of helps catch things uh, just because of your own personal background uh, with the use of language. Um, one example that um, I just heard on the radio one time is uh, somebody called up to a show and they were trying to figure out uh, what a text meant uh, because it just didn't seem to match what they thought and they were looking at uh, Psalm 1 verse 5. Um, in the ESV it says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And the caller was like, well, I just, I just don't understand. And it's saying that the, that the wicked won't stand in judgment. That they're not, they're not going to be judged. Um, and it was just because of their understanding of the word "stand" there. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming most of you um, are familiar with this passage and kind of have some idea what it's, what it's getting at. But one thing is, is like, I mean, that's just something that like can happen to anybody. That as they as they're reading, they're just used to a word being used a particular way. But if you're looking at different translations, you can kind of catch those things. So if you look at it in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says, "Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment, uh, and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous." And so there, it's it's a little less literal, but it gives you the idea. And if you're comparing translations, and you see that, you'd be like, "Oh." I see. I was I was misunderstanding, or at least it'll raise the question: like, was I misunderstanding the word "stand" when I was looking at it in the ESV? Um, so that's a very useful thing. And um, I actually have just a an example from my from my own experience of something where I misunderstood something for quite a while, um, and it wasn't actually comparing translations that made me discover it. It was uh, just reading somebody actually discussing the text and you know doing a deep dive and in interpretation that I realized my mistake um, but I could have caught it by looking at multiple translations and it's uh, in Philippians chapter 2 uh, I'll read verses 5 and 6 here uh, it says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped now for whatever reason, just with the way I was used to the English language being used, 
my default setting when somebody talked about something being grasped was understood, comprehended. And so, like, just by default, I would read this text, and although I didn't really understand exactly what he was, you know, what Paul was getting at here, um, the the idea is that is that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be understood or comprehended, um, and you know. That's not what the text means. If you look at, again, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, it says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Uh, or the King James, in this case. Uh, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, if I had looked at those things, then that would have that would have told me, it's like, oh, well, I, I must be getting grasped wrong um, just because of the way that these other translations are approaching it. Um, but that's, I mean, it's just like anybody can fall into that type of thing just because you're used to language being used a particular way. Um, and so... If you're comparing multiple translations, it'll help catch some of those things, just because they're going to phrase things differently. Um, so that's just um, another benefit, other than like trying to dig into the original language, just catching your own your own little mistakes that you picked up. So I hope that's all clear and helpful. So our exercise this morning, um, I think I should be able to just give you 10 minutes on it without any trouble. Um, and this should be fairly simple. Um, I just have John chapter 1, the first five verses. Um, pretty well-known text. And I've got it in these five different translations. So what I'd like you to do is just compare these five translations, try to spot the places where there's just absolute agreement between them, try to spot the places where there's some difference in ask some questions of like, well, what's the significance of this? What should I do for further study? Uh, so just, just look over those. Um, you'll have 10 minutes, and then we'll, we'll discuss uh, what you have found after 10 minutes.
you will be my witnesses.
telling him the good news, Mom? The book of Right, yeah. Yeah, once you once you get to the paraphrase, you should just expect differences. But yeah, uh, that's, I mean, what should that tell us about that? That is word for word in the first four more literal translations. Yeah. Pretty clear. Yeah. It's I have a big problem with the, the, the paraphrase. What's that again? I have a big problem with the paraphrase one. But they specifically say Christ was in the beginning, which the Christ is the God-man, not the Son of God. Okay. And that can be a confusion. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Um, you lose a lot of meaning of the Greek in the fourth. In the fourth uh, I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, Ryan. You're going to have to speak yeah. up. I just can't hear you. Uh, I have to agree. In the Living Bible, they lose a lot of meaning from the Greek phrase there. Uh, the more literal translations are trying to right. bring across. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you consider, it's like, where is the identification... Uh, of Christ as the Word in in the Living Bible, it's just it's just not there. They're just they're just taking that out. So it's like that's why you have to be very cautious with you know with paraphrases. They can be useful, but they shouldn't be your 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 go-to. It's just like it's something else you can look at to help you out. But but yeah, it's like you know in the beginning was the Word. That's a that's an important thing. So. Yeah, as, as I say, uh, I, and I think understanding those differences, like you said, in the mm-hmm. philosophies of translations is helpful, because I know I had a friend in college that used sort of this very, very loose paraphrase, mm-hmm. and she would say, oh, but see, you know, this you know, this word is used, and, and, and then she would go on on this, and I'm thinking, but this is just a paraphrase. The, the exact words mm-hmm. aren't as important as the idea and right. stuff like that, but if... No, but you, the New American Standard, that's a different case. Mm-hmm. You know, the exact words are, they're more intentionally and stuff like that. So yeah, understand that can help you. Yeah. But in fact, if you even like look at, uh, at the Living Bible there, the first verse reference is 1 and 2. Yeah. Um, and you will see that a lot with paraphrases where they don't keep the you know the verse divisions that are you know the traditional verse divisions i mean obviously they're, they're not inspired or anything you know they they came in the 16th century i believe um, but uh, but it's like you will see that where they will just group a number of verses together because they do so much rearranging of the the material that they can't isolate verse by verse but yeah so those are good observations um, what else and with this what I've noticed, verse three, um, the same idea, the same concept was always conveyed, but just the differences between the words of all things were made, all things came into being, all things were created. They all convey the same concept, but it's obvious that the literal translation of that word can go multiple ways. Right. Right. Yeah, we, we have we just have multiple ways in English 
to say that type of thing. So yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. It's it's interesting. It it doesn't actually apply to this example text that that we brought up, but I I have come across this in other places where made and created at least in English, are often used synonymously, but there are places where they just wouldn't be acceptable at all. Uh, so 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, he, made, he made him who knew no sin. And so, and like, I was, I was helping somebody memorize, and one time they threw in created instead of made, just because in English that's, a, that's an easy thing to do because we use them synonymously. But if you do that, it's like, he created him. And it's talking about Christ. So God created Christ. You know, then you run into a huge problem. So, um, so, but anyway, it's that's an example where, like, um, if you if you looked at that, and I haven't actually done this. Look at you know Second Corinthians five twenty one, multiple translations, and see if there's another translation that uses something other than made to tip you off, just in case you make that mistake. Um, but that would be another example of where it'd be really useful. But, but yeah, that, that's a good observation. But yeah, not not significant for the translation because it's like they all basically mean the same thing. So, anything else? Verse, verse four had a similar uh, effect, to it, and as the first two were identical, but then you have uh, three and four. The, the uh, translations three and four were different, but said pretty much the same thing. Just different wording or different order of words. Mm-hmm. The, the one real difference I could see between those were uh, they used the word that versus the, which can have slightly different connotations in English. In yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's good to let it dry before you crumble it probably. Yeah, the Holman Christian standard there is is uh, is using a different word to. You know, it it does have a. I'm I'm not enough of a grammarian to know how to describe it exactly, but it does it has a different uh, a different um, force than the. So that is something that you would definitely want to look at as you're studying it, right? Yeah. Uh, just something I I didn't catch at first, but I'm catching it now. And I don't know if this is uh, NASB uses capitalization, and usually that a lot of times will indicate. Uh, deity, uh-huh. um, like a capital Lord versus a lowercase Lord, mm-hmm. an example. Right. Uh, verse four: the light of man is capitalized, whereas uh-huh. in ESV and the others, it's not. Right. And then as you go down, instead of the light of man, it's mankind now. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think there's a definite difference yeah. there as yeah. far as who is the target audience or who is it referring to who's who's yeah. discussing. Well like I said those are actually like two different issues and the they are. Yes. Yeah the, the the capitalization thing again that is that is an interpretive thing. And so um, and well it's to some degree it's an interpretive thing and to some degree it's just like a translation choice that they make where certain translations want to capitalize things to make it very clear that it's referring to deity. Other translations are a lot less likely to do that. Um, they'll still do it in some places. Um, some places, or some translations just don't really do it at all. But then you, you, brought, up, you brought up the you know the, the men or mankind. What, what do you think is the significance of the, the difference there? You or anybody? Me, um, election. Okay. Is, uh, in a one-word way to put it. Okay. Uh-huh. Is uh, who is uh, is Christ? Is his sacrifice for all mankind, or is it for his life? Right. Yeah. It does use the term all mankind, so that can that can be misleading and uh, yeah, and lead us to have some tension there with the doctrine of election. So that's that's definitely a good thing to note. Is there any other significance to the difference there? Well, mankind refers to all people, mm-hmm. whereas if you read men, you could think men versus women. Mm-hmm. Right. Thing. So yeah, and I, I think that's probably why they did that, I, although they, they may have fallen into another trap of, of uh, having problems with election. But, um, but yeah, that, especially in our day, I mean, this wasn't the case you know, years ago, but in our day, um, people by default aren't going to look at a masculine pronoun and um, or you know a masculine word and understand it to be generic 
for a group of people of mixed gender. Um, that's uh, you know once upon a time that was very common in English. It's certainly what you what you have in the Greek language as well. Um, but you know the the English language is shifting to where more and more people are if they see the masculine there they're going to assume it's masculine and excluding the feminine. Um, and so putting in mankind in there is is much more likely to avoid that misunderstanding. So. Anything else? That looks great, guys. You're doing an awesome job. Um, there's the whole comprehend versus overcome. Mm-hmm. NAS is kind of at odds with the other ones with that. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm guessing that the NAS trying to be very literal or something like that and then trying to like actually get the concepts across or something. Uh, yeah, I'm not an expert on the issue, but I mean I did just like grab a commentary real quick and just like look and there was a discussion of like well, what's the proper translation of the word. So it's it is a translation issue. It's like how should that word be translated? Um, this is just coming off the top of my head without obviously uh, looking into it, but like with Sun Tzu and other ancient thinkers, to know your enemy, to have a complete comprehensive understanding of it is too difficult. <laughs> and so I think there can't, it, it could potentially tie in. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the reason that there's a question is just because there is some overlap in thought there. Um, I mean, obviously both of them are denigrating the darkness and you know exalting the light uh, in this context so but yeah but that is simply a question of like what should be the proper translation of this word in this context and there's debate about that um and uh you know if you didn't have the nsb in here you wouldn't even catch that if you were just looking at the esv home of christian standard niv you would just assume that it's all the same so that's why the more translations you can do with this exercise, the the you know the better you're going to be at catching stuff like that. Um, and, and, and really, with that too, it's it's difficult because both of them have biblical. If you look at the rest of the scripture, both of them have biblical uh, mm-hmm. evidence that backs them up sure. as a concept. Sure. Yeah, and that goes that goes back to our scripture interpreting scripture principle. Where you know we simply ask the questions like, well, what's consistent with scripture, or what would be contradictory to scripture, and here that doesn't actually help us because it's like, well, both of these are consistent with scripture, so we can't we can't pull in something from some other text to say, well, it must mean this. So that that adds an extra difficulty, but that would be a, an appropriate approach to use um, if we could get away with that. So, any other thoughts? Yeah. Well, I did see a few other things as I was looking at it, but we are out of time, so that's a—I mean—that's a pretty good sampling of like, kind of, you know, the types of things you could catch. And so I would strongly encourage, as you're studying the Bible, use this exercise. If you're studying a text, just look at multiple translations. Really try to hone in. What are the differences? And start asking your question. Asking the question, why are these differences here? And use that as a springboard for further study to try to get at things. So, all right. Well, that's hopefully that's helpful. Let's uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we have uh, such a rich uh, repository of of knowledge in your Word, and you have given us just all this. Um, all this information, all this complexity that that can be overwhelming, but uh, that gives us the tools where we can really dive in and try to understand your word correctly. And again, Lord, I pray that that would be our desire, um, not to simply uphold uh, whatever views uh, that we've been taught to believe, but that we would really attempt to study your word to understand it rightly. Did you really? God is, as Reformed Christians, that is that is the the hallmark of, of our entire history, um, is just a dedication to submitting to Your Word. And Lord, I just pray that we would be faithful to that, and that You would continue to cause us to grow and change and be more like Christ through the study of Your Word. Pray in Christ's name.